Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed therapist and professor. It's just me today. I thought I would talk about a movie I just saw tonight. But uh, first, just a little bit of business here. You can go to psychologyinseattle.com and check out all our various goodies. There's an archive of all our episodes. There's also a way you can contact us on our contact page. You can also email us, just independent of that, at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. You can also, if you please, go to the Support Us page and learn how to support us by doing various things like liking us on Facebook or donating. or um, It just lays it all out there, and if you want to be super cool, you would go there. All right, so getting to the movie I just saw tonight, I'm really excited to talk about this movie because it's so good. I can't even believe how good it was. It's a limited release movie. It's called Short Term 12. It just opened in Seattle here uh, at a couple small theaters. It's an indie film written and directed by Destin Daniel Cretton. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 98% rating. I'm guessing this movie isn't going to become very well known because it doesn't really have that kind of marketing behind it. And it also isn't the sort of movie that I think people want to see when they see a trailer for it. Incidentally, I wasn't going to see it because it looks depressing and sometimes depressing movies. I, I love depressing movies. If you know me, you hear me talk about other movies. Some my favorite movies are always the most depressing, like uh, Clockwork Orange and Brazil. Brazil is the most depressing movie ever, and it's like one of my favorite movies. But you know, when you're trying to relax on a Saturday night and you just you just want to kick back and watch something, sometimes you just aren't in the mood for a depressing movie. Depressing movies are kind of like going skiing for me. Whenever I go skiing the day before or the morning of, I'm always thinking, oh, God, I got to get everything together and I got to pack up the car and I got to drive through the snow and it's going to be cold and I got to put on my stupid pants and the jacket and the boots are tight and my feet hurt and... What if it's, what if they're all the people and the long lines and da, da, da. But once I'm up on the slopes, I'm like, oh my God, I need to come up here all the time. What am I, I can't believe I was thinking that this is a pain in the ass. It's so great, man. I should come up here all the time. I'm, I'm going to come up during the week and then I get off the slopes and I, and I wait another three years before I go skiing again. So seeing a, a quote unquote depressing movie or a seemingly depressing movie is kind of like that. It's, it's like, ugh, I, do I really want to see it? And then I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is really good. It's, it's incidentally not depressing. It's a little uplifting at the end. There's a lot of emotion in it, a lot of sadness, a lot of pain, a lot of anxiety. I thought that they portrayed anxiety really well. Anxiety is hard to portray in movies. If you don't want me to spoil the movie, I wouldn't listen to this episode. I'm going to try not to spoil it so much by like giving away the plot because it's not really that important. I'm mainly just going to talk about my reaction to the movie and maybe some of my own experiences that kind of reflect the story a little bit. It's about a group home where there are a bunch of kids, maybe 12 kids, maybe maybe that's why it's called short term 12, I'm not sure. The kids live there for, you know, anywhere from six months to three years. They're, they're teenagers, and they're there for various reasons. They are having behavioral problems, and their parents can't handle them, or there's neglect or abuse or something, and they end up in the state or county system, and they end up in these, in these group homes. And the movie is also about the staff who work. It's mainly about the staff who work there, actually. So the movie mainly follows two of the staff who are boyfriend-girlfriend, 
and they're young. They look like, I don't know, maybe they're 25 or something. And they work at the group home and they also have a relationship outside the home. The, the movie is mainly about their work in the home and about the teenagers who live there. I think it was extremely well written. Uh, it's, it's shot pretty well, I thought, too. The writer-director really knew how to portray the various emotions without making it cheesy. There was never a moment in the movie where I was like, oh, come on, that's so ridiculous. And, and I often think that in movies. And actually, the movie was short. It was only 96 minutes. And I know in the old days, that would have been a standard movie. But today, I feel like all movies are, you know, two plus hours. And uh, often I'm thinking, you know, they probably could have shaved off 20 minutes and made it a better movie. Well, this movie felt like it just flew by and it was just 96 minutes. So, again, if you're, you know, a little skittish about seeing a movie that has some difficulty in it, you only have to endure 96 minutes. But really, I was wanting it to go on another three hours. It was just that interesting to me. So while I was in the movie... I was annoyingly to my neighbors taking notes on my iPhone. I turned down the screen intensity so it wasn't uh, blinding. And every once in a while, I would pull out my iPhone and, and take a little note to myself. So I'm just going to go through them. One of the things that they portray in the movie is that the kids are in the group home voluntarily, so to speak, that they can leave whenever they want and the staff can't do anything about it. And and this is kind of an interesting thing. There's There's group homes in Seattle that I've worked with as a therapist, you know, like I'll have a client that ends up in a group home. And, and before I was a therapist, actually, maybe while I was in grad school, um, in my getting my master's 20 years ago, I worked in a group home briefly. So it was interesting to, to watch this movie, you know, given my own experience with these group homes. And again, I thought that they did it pretty accurately. I remember working at, at this one particular group home up in Everett, and sometimes kids would leave. And it was always this major pain in the butt because the, the higher-ups put a lot of pressure on the staff, who would be me and like a few other people that would be in the home, to make sure that the kids are safe and that they don't run. And basically what we're supposed to do is kind of convince the kid not to go by trying to help them de-escalate or by trying to use incentives or by just trying to use our relationship with the teen to get them not to run. And so it was always extremely anxiety-provoking because these kids would um, be highly motivated sometimes to bolt out the door or they'd be at the door screaming and yelling like, I'm leaving, I can't take it anymore and I hate you people and, and you're there trying to basically calm them down or beg them to stay or figure out a way to get them to stay but you're kind of powerless because you can only use your words and there's, you know, sometimes words don't work. The um, group home that I worked in was a renovated house. It was just in the middle of this suburban neighborhood and uh, they renovated it into a group home for kids. Um, but but from, the, from the outside, it looked just like a regular home. And it was sort of surreal because you would pull up and it looked like just any old suburban family home. And you walk in and there'd just be just tons of chaos. There would just be drama and anger and sadness and fear and other professionals would, would be coming in and out and people would have um, severe psychiatric symptoms and, and the staff would be pulling their hair out. And, and then, and, and, you know, meanwhile, outside the walls, no one was the wiser. Maybe the neighbors knew, I don't know, but it was always just kind of surreal because you, you'd step outside in the backyard and it just looked like your parents' home with swings and stuff. Early in the movie, they portray a, a therapeutic hold 
I don't know if that's a common term for it, but when I worked in the group home and in other uh, jobs that I had before I was a therapist, uh, we would call them therapeutic holds. That's another, it's kind of a euphemism for basically when you restrain a client physically. And they portrayed this a, a few times in the movie. And I thought that they dealt with it really well because the staff, the experienced staff, when they're doing the therapeutic hold, they seem to be completely at ease with it, even though it, it seems traumatic and the child is freaking out and they need to restrain this this person. They, they're just taking it as a matter of their job and it's not a big deal to them. I, I remember very occasionally having to give therapeutic holds. I usually tried to avoid clients like that. There were people that worked in these group homes that were much more adept at their job than I was. I wasn't very good as a group home counselor. Uh, I was mainly kind of like a fill-in person. Uh, there were people that worked in these homes that were uh, they were just so good at this sort of thing. They they knew how to de-escalate situations like that. They knew how to discipline. They knew how to get kids in line. I, I don't know if my skill set is is really in that area. The ability to to corral groups of defiant kids. I, I'm not a very good disciplinarian, but I do remember occasionally having to do a therapeutic hold, and they actually would train us on how to restrain someone. And so it's not only just like tackling them, but you also have to hold them maybe for like an hour, you know, while they um, are freaking out because until you can be reassured that they're not going to continue doing what they were doing physically, you, you have to hold them. So they've developed these techniques to hold people in a way that reduces the likelihood of people getting hurt and reduces the likelihood of you getting hurt. So for instance, uh, it's easiest when you have more than one person because each person grabs an arm, another person grabs the legs, but you have to do it in a way that they can't bite you and they can't spit on you and they can't headbutt you. And this is hard, but sometimes you're all alone and you have to hold someone by yourself. And this is done by um, kind of locking their arms and sitting down behind them. And then you have to um, kind of crouch down. It's hard to describe, but imagine like grabbing both arms through the elbows of someone from behind them, sitting down on the ground, but your heads are close to each other so they can whip their head back and headbutt you. So you have to kind of crouch your head below their shoulders so their head can't hit you. So you're, in the, you're almost like a human backpack, I guess, is one way of thinking about it. It's very uncomfortable to do. And, and as I talk about this, I think, like, how much were they paying us? I mean, they couldn't have been paying us much more than minimum wage, probably a little bit more, but definitely not a good enough wage to justify the job description of having to endure physical assaults from clients. That was another thing about the movie that sort of reminded me of, of that kind of period in my life and my career was that the people who worked there, the counselors that worked in the group home, were young they, I don't know, they seemed, it was hard to tell if they were like 22 or 28 or somewhere in between or something, but you know, they're very young people. And, and I remember that being the case. I was, uh, I would have been 24, 25 when I was working in a group home and they just hand us the keys to the house and say, go for it. I think it's because the only people that they can find to work such a crappy job at such a low pay are young people who are starting out. And so it's just ironic, you know, 
because um, because back then I thought, well, yeah, I mean, we're old, we can take care of these kids. But now that I'm older, I'm 42, I'm looking at these uh, basically just kids in their in their early 20s taking care of these other kids that are just not that much younger than them. I guess as, as I reflect on, back on that time, I, I remember just hoping that there wouldn't be any events, any traumatic events during my shift. You know, I would get, I would, I would arrive, you know, like at four o'clock in the evening and, and work till midnight. That was the other thing. You had to have staff there 24 seven, you know, so you might get the graveyard, which I suppose would be the best shift since you didn't have to do much other than just make sure they didn't get out of the rooms. But but I remember just hoping that there wasn't going to be a horrible thing that would happen. I was just hoping, okay, I hope the kids do what we tell them to do. I hope they don't fight with each other. I hope that no one has a breakdown of some kind. I hope, I hope no one runs. I hope uh, no one threatens to kill themselves or to hurt someone else. I just, it was a, you just never knew what was going to happen. You know, you walked into this house and, and as I think back on, it, I just think, man, you know, there's just so much out of our control in these homes. And, so another thing I should mention is that the kids who end up in these group homes are the kids who typically have the most severe behavioral problems. These are kids, not always for sure, but, but usually that was the case in my experience. Because if they didn't have as severe behavioral problems, they would be somewhere else. These group homes are sometimes the, the last resort it's very expensive for the state or the county to pay for these services, to have a kid in a home and have, it, have to pay for the home and pay for the staff and all that stuff. It's expensive. So if they can find like a foster home or a uh, relative or even one of their parents, um, if available to take care of them, then the state would much rather have them do that. But the reason why they are in group homes is because typically because their behavior was so difficult that the foster parents or the relatives couldn't handle them. And so as a young staff member, you know, I just didn't feel prepared or trained to be able to deal with that. Another thing I want to mention that the movie did really well, I thought, was there's a scene where someone cries. There's actually, a, you know, a few scenes where people cry, but, but there's one scene where one of the teenagers cries. And I thought that the director dealt with it really well. One of the things that really bothers me about movie crying, you know, when actors cry in movies, is that they often cry in such a way that it plays it up for the camera. They're very exposed. Their face is very exposed. I, I imagine directors say, you know, we've got to see the tears. We've got to see the pain in, in your face. Well, in my experience, when people cry, they don't do that, especially when they're really crying, you know, like sobbing. People tend to buckle over. They tend to curl in on themselves, and they tend to hide their face, especially boys, especially men, because of the shame that we have in our society about men and crying. It was a teenage boy that, that was crying, and the way that it was in the movie, he, he, he did that. He, he kind of buckled over. They also de depicted anxiety really well. Like I said earlier, it's hard to depict anxiety in movies, I think. And by anxiety, I mean like an ongoing worry, not like, oh, there's a tiger. My eyebrows are very high. I'm very scared of that tiger. It's not, it's not that kind of reactive fear, fight or flight kind of fear. It's more like ongoing anxiety. One of the characters in the film has been traumatized by one of her relatives who consequently went to prison. And when she is notified that that person is getting out of prison, she has anxiety about it. And in the film, again, they, they did this well. They, 
she gets closed off from people. She doesn't, she doesn't start running around crazy and going, Oh my gosh, I'm so afraid. When, when people get this kind of fear, they typically don't know what to do and they, they kind of shut down and they kind of shut people out or they will find ways to try to make themselves feel better or just to try to distract themselves. Or they might even kind of feel like they're suffocating, like they're in a state where they want to run, but they don't know what they're running from. The other thing that this film reminded me of uh, from my 20s was just how we lived in filth in the 20s. When, when we were, uh, me and all my friends in, in our 20s, we just, we just lived in disgusting apartments with disgusting hand-me-down furniture. Nothing matched, and we had weird things on our walls that we sort of pieced together. I don't know if, I'm sure not every 24-year-old lived this way, but I feel like I did. I, I remember trying to keep things clean, but not really putting that much effort into it. So one of the kids in the group home exhibits behaviors such as isolating himself. He's very quiet. He um, seems very depressed. He spends most of his time, most of his time in his bed in a fetal position all day long. He's not shaking or anything. He's shut down and cut off. And the only thing apparently that keeps him in the world and, and somewhat happy are these little dolls that he has. They're these little figures, like, I don't know, like a few inches tall. And he likes to play with them. And when he has those, he can be in the living room and hang out with everyone else. But when he doesn't have those, he is completely shut down and isolated. Well, at some point, the, the main character, she comes to work and she sees him in his bed, completely isolating and just laying there in a fetal position. And so she goes to the other staff member and she says, what's up with, what's his face? And she, and she says, well, his therapist took away his dolls because he, he wanted him to let go. I can't remember the exact words. And then the, the main character reacts with this, oh, therapists, man, they're so stupid. <laughs> if there's one complaint I would have about this movie, it was the way that they portrayed therapists. They, they kind of made them out to be oblivious or out of touch or almost harmful to the children. But anyway, I would say that it is a common experience for staff members in a group home to be at odds with the therapists who are treating the children in the group home. I certainly have seen that a lot. And, and mainly the, the overall reason for that, I think, is miscommunication, really. It takes a lot of time for therapists and staff members to communicate. As a therapist, if you have 50 hours of work in a week, and then you have to spend another five hours calling all the various different collateral contacts, we call them. It's like, uh, it's Friday, I just want to go home and, and, and relax. So these kinds of communications, in my experience, usually get discarded because of just not enough time in the week. But when you have this miscommunication, I think what people tend to do is they will scapegoat each other as the cause of the child's dysfunction. So, you know, we have this kid who is isolating and depressed and the staff is looking at him going, why, you know, why, why is he doing this? You know, how, how come this is so we can't figure out how to get him to not be this way. And then the therapist comes along and takes away his dolls and he gets more depressed. Well, it's, it's, you know, it would be 
uh, natural for the staff to blame the therapist for it all. But it's unknown, and they don't talk about it in the movie. And, of course, it's a fictional story, so there's, there is no actual other therapist. But if this was a real situation, there's no way to know exactly what the therapist has in mind. I mean, maybe the therapist has uh, a heart of gold and is on a good path with the child to figure out a way to make things better for the teenager. And there's going to be a temporary period where the kid is not going to be too happy. And maybe in the end, things will work out. Or maybe the therapist is horrible and is completely out of touch and has no idea what they're doing. And as a consequence, takes away the dolls and now the kid is is worse off. Either it could be true. But without communication between the therapist and the staff, there's not a way for them to collaborate on these things. When I saw that scene and a lot of scenes, I thought the writer director must have worked in a group home or something or or, or must have you know, been close to the situation because he, he certainly portrayed it well. Another interesting moment that I thought was very accurate was the, the main kid in the movie is this girl who arrives uh, during the movie at, you know, she arrives in the group home. And she, she's really struggling. She, she's having a hard time connecting and she is being kind of a jerk to the staff. But, you know, as the movie progresses, she starts warming up. Uh, the kids are starting to bond with her. The staff is starting to bond with her. And just when things seem to be going really, really well, the girl runs. She just runs out of the, of the building and, you know, runs away. And I just took this little note. I just, I just you know, wrote to myself, just when things are going well, she runs. And, and I remember that happening, not only in group homes, but just with this sort of work in general. I remember so many times thinking, wow, things are going really well with this kid. We finally are in a good place. Oh, man, this is, this is great. Things are looking up. Things are rosy. We're definitely never going to see the horribleness that we saw a month ago. Everything's going to be great. And then, boom, the kid would have some kind of decompensation or would have some kind of acting out or some kind of event, and they'd be right back to where they were before. And it, it's just so discouraging when you're working so closely with these people. They really portray well how patient the counselors are. They endure so much of this up and down stuff with each of the teenagers, and they just keep going. And they never lose their cool. Well, in general, I mean, there's sort of a story arc where one of the counselors loses her cool to some extent. But but in general, you know, 99% of the time, the counselors are just super cool and super nice and yet firm. You know, they're, they're not doormats. They're, they definitely have their limits and their rules. But they just keep going. They've learned to accept that the kids do this sort of thing, and they're okay with that. And, and that leads me to another point, in that this that, that very action of a teenager varying their behavior and having meltdowns and having good days and having bad days and having the counselors be a stable base for them and being patient and not reacting and always accepting of the kids, that action is extremely therapeutic. And it's one that I try to provide for all my clients, really. To put it into theory terms and my interpersonal psychodynamic terms, I believe this to be very true, that through relationships, through whatever kind of relationship it is, but if we're going to talk about good relationships, stable, secure relationships, these relationships become internalized by the client. 
these teenagers often have experienced very insecure relationships and have experienced abuse. They've experienced rejection. They've experienced a lot of bad things and have internalized that. And they desperately want and need a secure relationship with someone that they can internalize so they can have a better view of themselves and a better view of other people and a more robust ability to regulate their own emotions. And the way that you do this is through reparative relationship experiences, uh, either with a therapist or a counselor or a parent or a friend or just, you know, a significant person in your life. And that's why as a psychodynamic interpersonal therapist, I believe that the relationship between the client and therapist is extremely important. And in the movie, the counselors were providing this, this secure base for the kids and that the kids were internalizing that and benefiting from it. Again, with the idea that through that experience, it changes their personality. It makes them feel better about themselves. They have less shame. They are more open to other people. They trust people more. They trust appropriately. They know how to detect who's trustworthy and who isn't. They begin to learn how to love others. They begin to learn how to love themselves. I find that in our cognitive behavioral dominated therapy world, we don't hear a lot of that kind of language. And I find it to be the most important thing I can provide as a therapist is that kind of relationship that a client can benefit from. I find that when people talk a a lot about the cognitive behavioral side, which I firmly believe in, I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy and all of its offshoots, um, they're all extremely useful. Believe me, I use them all the time. But I think that to just do that and neglect the possibilities that exist just within the relationship alone between client and therapist is missing a huge opportunity. Now, I will say that I believe some people inadvertently are doing psychodynamic interpersonal work when they think that they're only doing cognitive behavioral work. Like, for instance, you have a a cognitive therapist who is working with their client about their anxiety and they're talking about, okay, what are your automatic thoughts? Okay, you walk into the store, you get anxious. Okay, why do you get anxious? Oh, because I'm worried someone's going to see how nervous I am. Okay, well, what if someone saw how nervous you are? How is that that big of a deal? Or are you just blowing it out of proportion? Well, I guess I'm blowing it out of proportion. Okay, so next time you go into the store, tell yourself that you're blowing it out of proportion and, and try to change that thought to, to match reality so that you feel differently. So that's, you know, just in a nutshell, off the top of my head, kind of a random cognitive therapy example. Well, the therapist, if they're strictly cognitive, is not thinking about the relationship very much. They're, They're probably thinking about working relationship and they're probably thinking about having a good rapport, but they're not thinking about how the relationship between the client therapist is actually benefiting the client in a very real way. So say they do this over time and the client and the therapist have a good rapport and a good working relationship. And that client experiences the therapist as not rejecting them. The client comes in and talks about all their crazy thoughts. And the therapist says, you're not crazy. This is fine. You're, you're totally normal. This is, this is totally okay. And the client internalizes that non-rejection and that acceptance that the therapist is providing. And through that experience in that relationship, the client is transformed. So I believe that psychodynamic interpersonal work, like I said earlier, is, is, is being done by lots of therapists, whether they know it or not. But some people, I think, neglect it. Another thing that happened in the movie I thought was really interesting, and I thought that they dealt with it really well. So the counselor, the main character, 
what's her name in the movie? Grace. So as the movie progresses, it comes out that she has a traumatic past and, and it's not resolved for her. She definitely has a lot of unresolved issues regarding the trauma she experienced as a child at the hands of her own father. And when she is talking with the difficult new resident, this, this teenage girl, the teenage girl is troubled and seems to have a troubled relationship with her dad, but it's, it's kind of hard to tell. They don't know much about the situation. And there's a scene where the counselor, Grace, is talking to the teenage girl. Her name was Jaden. Um, so Grace is talking to Jaden, and Jaden tells this fictional story that she's written. It's, it's a very sad story, and it's about this octopus that is basically abused by a shark. And at the end of the story, Jaden starts crying. And it's a very emotional scene. There's a lot of scenes where you, your heart is just, you know... It's impossible not to cry at this movie, I'm telling you. But Jaden is, is, starts crying and you know because this fictional story about this octopus who's being abused by the shark seems to be a metaphor for her. And at the end of the story, she starts crying, and Grace, the counselor, asks Jaden, she says, you know, what does this have to do about, you know, tell me you know, what's on your mind? And, and the kid doesn't say anything. She just is crying. And Grace says, does this have to do with your father? Does your, is your father abusing you? I, I want to know so I can help you. And the teenager doesn't say anything. Well, so at this point, I was thinking in two different modes. In one mode, I was thinking as a human being. And as a human being, I was thinking, oh, it's got to be the father, man. Her father must be abusing her. This, this, you know, this has got to be happening. But as a therapist, I was thinking, we don't know anything. All we know is that she is sad about something that she's troubled about something, and she also has a strained relationship with her father. But that doesn't necessarily mean that her father is abusing her. A lot of people have strained relationships with their parents. So in the movie, it was clear that the counselor was convinced that the teenager was being abused by her father. But as a therapist watching it, I was thinking, you just don't really know that. And, and as a professional, you can't go around accusing people of things without having any data. So, so Grace, they show her writing in her notes, which I thought was also accurate. You spend a lot of time writing as a counselor or a therapist, especially in these group homes, because you have to write about everything that happened. So it's documented. And so they show that she's writing down what happened uh, in her day and lots of things happened, including this uh, scene with the Jaden character. And the notes go to the therapist who is in charge of the group home. And so the next day, uh, Grace arrives to work and Jaden is gone. And she's like, where's, where's Jaden? And they say, oh, her father came and picked her up. And she's like, what? And she goes to the therapist who's in charge and she says, how come you let her go with her father? And the therapist says, well, you know, her father came to get her. So there you go. And she says, didn't you see my note? Didn't you see what I'd written down? I, you know, didn't, didn't you see that? And the therapist says, yeah, I saw it. But what happened yesterday doesn't indicate that she was abused by her father. All you have is a story about an octopus and a shark and, and her crying. She didn't say anything. So we don't, we don't know. And she's like, it's obvious that the father is abusing and I can't believe it. And so, you know, you have this counselor, Grace, going with her gut, um, which is incidentally turns out to be right. Spoiler. But uh, the therapist is going by the data. And you can't, as a therapist, just start accusing people of things without having some bit of data. 
I mean, you don't have to have like video footage of abuse happening, but at least you have to have the kids saying, yes, my father is abusing me. It's just one of those really horrible things about the world, I guess, or the law or something is that as a kid, as a kid, if you're being abused by one of your parents who has custody of you, what do you do? If you say something to somebody, you're letting it out and you're trying to get help. Well, you don't have any guarantees that anyone's going to be able to do anything for you. It's not as if you, you know, tell CPS and the, you know, Superman comes flying into your home and beats up your father for you. It just doesn't work that way. And there are lots of kids. Let me tell you a story that happened to me early on that sort of woke me up to this reality. I I had this teen girl client who I had developed a, a very good relationship with therapeutically. And she ended up revealing to me that her father was sexually abusing her. And she told me stories and they were super creepy and it was just awful. And I said, okay, I've got it. I can help you. I, you know, you have told the right person. I'm a therapist and I've got, you know, the law on my side and CPS and the agency that I work for. And we're going to help you out. We're going to, we're going to make this right. We're going to protect you because you're being so brave and you're, you're telling me about it and we're going to go for it. So naturally I was working at an agency at the time. This was, I don't know, like 98 So I tell my supervisor and we call CPS and CPS does an investigation and police are called and I'm thinking, man, this is scary, but it's got to happen. This is a good thing. We're going to get this kid away from this father. The father's going to be convicted of a crime and justice will be served and and the situation's going to be great after this. Well, after... Everyone did all that stuff, police and CPS and supervisor, and I'm talking to people and the girls totally being brave and complying with everybody. And in the end, they just sent her back home. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, wait, she is telling us that he is sexually abusing her. And the the problem was, is that it wasn't severe enough. He was uh, watching her while she showered Like sometimes she'd be showering and she'd open her eyes and he'd be in the bathroom just looking at her, you know? I think he was, you know, just stuff stuff along those lines. Maybe porn was involved or... So because we didn't have a more severe story, they didn't do anything. They just told him, the father, to stop and they put her back in the home. And and now after going through this so many times, I I understand why. And and I, I don't think it's a good thing, by the way. The, the reason why is because the state doesn't have money enough to pay for every issue that comes to them. If they had more money, they probably would do more. So basically what that amounts to is they can only react to the most severe situations. If we allocated like, you know, 1% of the money that we allocated toward our defense fund, I'm sure we could pay for every single kid to, to get what they need. And so there's this, so there's, so getting back to the movie, there's this scene where Grace, the counselor is yelling at the therapist and and screaming at him and saying, this kid is being abused by her father and you let her go home with the father. What's wrong with you? And he's, she, she's screaming at him and he says, um, yelling at me is not an effective form of communication. (laughs) And it seemed like such a dick thing to say in the moment. And I have to say, it is a dick thing to say. 
I can't stand it when therapists talk like this in their personal life. I mean, it's fine if it's a client that's freaking out and and you say, look, you know, yelling at me is not going to work here. But in your personal life or in your collegial life, uh, to use those kinds of ridiculous therapist statements towards your colleagues, I just find be extremely annoying. Uh, I have a supervisee who was renting an office from another therapist. And the the landlord, the landlord slash therapist was doing some horrible things like she would she would schedule a client in the in the office and you know going through all the normal protocols that he had the landlord had set up. And then at the last minute, the landlord slash therapist would just rent it to someone else. And she'd be standing there with a client going, um, where am I going to talk to my client? So when my supervisee told me this, I was like, oh my God, that's ridiculous. That's horrible. So you need to talk to him about this. And so she goes to him and she's a level-headed person. And, and so uh, she has this conversation with him and he keeps saying all these like really ridiculous things, you know, like we never agreed to that. And, and she would say, hey, look at the contract. It says here that if I do it this way, then that locks me into the office. You, you can't just bump me out of the office at the last moment. Plus it's horrible to my client's. My supervisee was getting angry at him. I wasn't there. She was describing this to me. And then he said something like, so I see that you're very angry right now. Something like that. I think it was, you know, something very close to that. I, I see that you're very angry right now. And I just found that when she told me that story, I was just livid. I couldn't believe that he would be so condescending. I mean, the reason why, yeah, she's getting angry because you're being a ridiculous person and she has every right to be angry. And then he responds with, you seem to be very angry right now. It's such a passive aggressive thing to say. I can't even believe it. Oh, by the way, a little rant about the word passive or the you know phrase passive aggressive. People are overusing this phrase. Um, let me just, for people out there listening, here's the definition of passive aggressive. You, you know the definition of aggressive, right? Okay. Aggressive is when you're hostile, right? Uh, you're calling someone a name or you're saying you're putting someone down. That's aggressive. That's basically within the context of passive aggressive. That's what the aggressive part means. You're being hostile to someone. You're being mean. Well, passive aggressive is when you're being hostile, but in a passive way. So you know, instead of being directly aggressive by calling someone a fucker, you are being passive aggressive by doing some something like um, you can be passive aggressive by showing up late. So you're angry at someone and you're going to meet them for lunch and you show up a half an hour late. And when you get there, you're, you're like, you're like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? And you're net, you never let on that you're angry or you, you never have any overt hostility, but by being late, that's being passive aggressive. Now in, in the general public, I see people using the phrase passive aggressive to label things that I think are just aggressive. It's almost like the code word now for just being hostile. People like to say the word passive aggressive. But so remember that passive aggressive is is quite indirect hostility. And that if someone is being sort of obviously hostile, then just call them hostile or call them aggressive or something. But don't call them passive aggressive because it, it's it's annoying to me. So <laughs> so if you don't want to annoy me, uh, don't do that. And uh, God knows everyone was put on this planet to not annoy me, right? <laughs> and, the, and the last note I have here in on my iPhone is that the actress who played Grace, the counselor, uh, what's her name, Brie Larson, she has a very good baseball bat swing. Um, 
as a as a athlete myself, I you know, grew up playing a lot of sports. I appreciate when people have good form. It, it shows that they either have practiced or they're just naturally athletic or something. But there's this scene where the actress Brie Larson, who's playing the Grace character, she is uh, beating something up with a bat. She's she's banging on something. She's not hurting any anybody, but she's she's hitting something with a bat repeatedly. And she has extremely good form. She she's putting her hips into it, and the the speed and the force at which this bat is flying through the air is, is very impressive. The amount of power she was getting behind this bat was, was very satisfying to watch. <laughs> Some final thoughts I have about the film are, are this, I think. Definitely see it, especially if you're a therapist, especially if you've worked at a group home. It portrays a superior form of patience in a very realistic manner. I think that sometimes it's inspiring as a professional, for me to see such professionalism in people. And the lead characters, Grace and Mason, this couple that work at this group home, they exhibit so much patience that it's inspiring to see. And it pays off in the end. You know, they affect people's lives for the better. And I think sometimes it's good for us to see stuff like that, that we all do this for a reason. We, in the helping professions, are trying to help because we want to help, because we want people to get better. We want people to have a better life. We want them to feel better about themselves. We want them to have less symptoms. We want them to feel more confident. We want them to have less suffering. And one of the ways that we achieve that is by having a lot of patience and by being secure in that space in which we are unsure about what's going to happen next. Um, To have patience when most other people would throw their hands up and run out of the room. To be there with those people as they go through very tough times. They might even spit in our face and we accept them. You know, we're not doormats, but we can see the pain underneath the anger We trust that if we stick by someone long enough, they will soften and they will appreciate us and will thank us for being there for them. I think it's very easy to forget that that is why a lot of us got into this profession. So if I think there's one takeaway from this movie, it's that inspiration. All right. Well, that does it for my review of the movie Short Term 12. And it also does it for this episode. So thanks for joining me. And remember to take care of yourself because you deserve it, you know?